the reading of the scriptures this morning uh, from Romans 8, reading verses 18 to 25, I invite your uh, reverent attention, uh, hearing and faith of uh, the Word of God here from Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was not subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Life oftentimes is filled with ironies or apparent contradictions. I think that's particularly true of the Christian because, as you know, we are sons of the Most High God. But the irony is that as sons, uh, we are going to suffer. Uh, The hope of the fact that we are the sons of the Most High God is that he will reverse our sufferings and turn them all into joy and glory, which he certainly will do. Uh, Our text uh, this morning is uh, a reminder that Amidst all the present sufferings of life that break upon the sons of God, is that God will answer them all with glory. And glory and sufferings for sons go together. They're not to be separated. Yes, it's true we're going to suffer, but God is also going to work it all for glory. It is a return to a theme that Paul really started in Romans chapter 5. If you look in your New Testament, verse 3, Paul says, And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. Well, of course, tribulation and sufferings are a little bit different, but in terms of uh, the similarities, uh, they are a reminder that we suffer, and sometimes uh, we are persecuted as the sons of God. Uh, It's picked up again in verse 17 of the 8th chapter, where we are this morning. And if children heirs, also heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. So the conditional clause reminds us that our union with Christ includes not only a union with his glorification in the age to come, but also that he was persecuted in prosecuting the will of his father and the mental and physical agonies of, again, persecution and suffering. 
And because we are identified with him in that the only begotten Son of God suffered, we as the adopted sons of God are going to suffer. And as the only begotten Son was resurrected in everlasting glory, uh, glory awaits us. So this great irony of suffering and being persecuted, God will answer with glory, eternal glory. Uh, and because our Savior endured and persevered faithful through it all, uh, we must as well. Uh, in verse 18, Paul gives us a reason to persevere in midst of suffering. And it is, as I have suggested, that suffering and glory go together. Uh, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Uh, the word suffering here is a, a broad uh, term that uh, encompasses uh, many aspects of suffering. Uh, anguish, uh, mental and physical distress, persecution. It's very interesting that it's from this word that we have the English word for pathetic. We oftentimes might think of someone who is in a very terrible plight, and we might say something to the end that that's a pathetic state to be in. Uh, again, the word pathos comes from uh, this, this Greek word. Uh, it in Scripture, though, it's very interesting uh, that the word for suffering is linked with other words as well, words like glory, comfort. In our text this morning, the word hope is used six times. And, of course, it's also linked with the biographies of Christ, his apostles, and, of course, the ancient church. So none of these things should surprise us. They come from Scripture, and they come from the life of God's people. Uh, Peter says in his first epistle, chapter 1, in verse 11, of all of the Old Testament prophets... Uh, that they sought to know the person or time that the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as they indicated the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. The sufferings of Christ followed by glory. Chapter 5, verse 10, Peter says, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Persecution and suffering comes from many venues, physical, moral, doctrinal, economic. Uh, the basic idea of the word to persecute is to pursue, uh, pursue someone to do them harm. Uh, for example, we read in the book of Acts, chapter 14, verse 22, the apostles were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. It is an irony. Seemingly, sons are not supposed to suffer. Parents protect their children from suffering. Our Heavenly Father brings it to us to perfect us, to strengthen us, and to cause us to endure and to persevere, imaging the life of our Savior who suffered and was resurrected in glory. Uh, the modifier in verse 18 of the present time 
uh, means to me that we are in the end-time tribulation inaugurated by Christ. And therefore, our identity with Christ and the times in which we live means that we are going to suffer as a prelude to glory. And for the sons of God, suffering and glory go together. For the sons of God. For those who are not the sons of God, they may, they may experience a measure of glory in this life. Promotions, awards, uh, Olympic medals, uh, trophies, but it will all come to a crashing ruin and all will be turned to dust and suffering will be eternal. But for the sons of God, sufferings will be turned to glory. Uh, Paul uh, counters the concept of suffering and persecution uh, with the law of proportion. Uh, notice what he says in the verse, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Paul is countering the present difficulties of the end time tribulation with the great promise of the future, resurrected to glory, eternal glory, unremitting glory, glory that never runs out. The full weight of the glory of God breaking upon us when our Savior comes for us. Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapter 4 uh, and uh, verse 17. Uh, the apostle says, For momentary light afflictions are producing within us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. So it's a law of proportion proportionality. Uh, we will suffer in this life. We will give due measure to the fall and all of its effects, even Christians, the sons of God. But for the sons of God, God will answer our sufferings and our persecutions with the eternal weight of glory, of which there is absolutely no comparison to our earthly sufferings and everlasting eternal glory that awaits us. It's God's answer. It's also the motivation to persevere, to continue as our Savior persevered. Went the distance, persecuted throughout his life, even to the cross, death and the vagaries of suffering as the God-man. But he never flinched and never turned back. He persevered. And that's as well an answer to our present sufferings to image our Savior and to watch Him glorified and knowing that that is what awaits us. Uh, there's another reason that we persevere in hope in terms of the midst of suffering. Uh, because our response of persevering in hope, in sufferings, is informed by the promise of the physical creation, verses 19 to 22. We must wait for glory so too must the physical creation. Verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Uh, the word here, anxious longing or eager waiting, has the idea of an outstretched neck longing to see the end. And the end here is the revealing of the sons of God. It's like someone that perhaps is at an athletic event and they cannot see 
all the competitors, so they tiptoe or they, sometimes a child is carried on the shoulder of the parents. Eagerly awaiting the creation is framed here in a figure of speech, a personification. Longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The idea is that the final restoration of the sons of God in glory is a public event that will serve as the signal of cosmic restoration, not only of the sons of God, but the entire created order. For it's not only that glory will envelop us as the sons of God, but also the physical creation that we will inhabit throughout an eternity of glory. Again, the figure of speech in which human emotions and actions are attributed to an inanimate creation. Intensifying the reality that as the creation waits, we must wait patiently as well. The lesson is that because the creation is waiting for glory, we must too. Our reminder in life as Christians, the sons of God, that we're going to be persecuted, we're going to suffer, but we must wait and take the long-term view. And why do we wait? Because restoration is coming for us in glory, the glory of the Creator. And the reason we must wait is because God cursed the creation as a result of the fall. It's an allusion here uh, to the fall, Genesis chapter 3. You have your Old Testament, I encourage you to turn there. Uh, third chapter, book of Genesis, uh, the fall of uh, Adam and Eve, and uh, what do they bring upon the creation? Uh, in a measure, suffering. Verse 17. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed it is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Fall brings a curse upon the physical creation, but also upon Adam and Eve and all of their progeny. It is a reminder to us that the curse is a figure of speech referencing the whole of all chaos and disorder that comes upon the creation. Uh, not only the inanimate creation of the world, but also upon the sons of Adam. In that sense, every disorder, every malady, every heartbreak, every disease, and the designs and intentions of evil men are the product of the fall because Adam and Eve, our forefathers, fell. And we fell in them. And we live in a cursed world. And even as the sons of God, we do not escape many of the effects of the curse, except for the second death, which is the ultimate curse of the greatest of terror. 
it is true. Christians sometimes lose their jobs, bury their children, become anxious, are persecuted. But the final aspect of the curse is death. But that is not the end for the sons of God, because glory awaits us. The great promise of the text of which the Apostle Paul speaks is that for the sons of God, suffering and glory go together. In the one we wait patiently, but glory will come for us. It's a promise of God. And that God is the final answer. In verses 21 to 22, the creation will be set free from the corruption unto freedom. The creation in which we live, if you will, in a figure of speech, is presently shackled. But God will unlock the prison, break the shackles, and every aspect of the curse in eternity will vacate the glorified heaven and earth. Think about it. A world in which there are no thorns, viruses, bacterias, storms, they will all vacate the creation. Imagine a world like that. That nothing will break. And we will live in unremitting glory for all time. Because we are the sons of God. And that God will turn our suffering to glory. In the theology of uh, the book of the Revelation, Apostle John, Revelation 21, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth in which the curse has been totally lifted and the earth remade into glory. And as is the end state of the new creation, we too are set free unto the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Uh, the Apostle John writes in his first epistle, chapter 3, verse 2, when we see the Savior when he comes for us, we shall see him as he is, the glorified Son of God. And as we see him, we shall be like him in glory. One of my favorite uh, verses of the vacating of the curse from the entire creation from the prophet Isaiah, uh, chapter 51, in verse 11. And so the ransomed of the Lord will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, and everlasting joy will be on their heads, and they will obtain gladness with joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Imagine, sorrow and sighing will flee away because God has entirely vacated the curse forever. And that's where we will live as the sons of God. In bodies of glory, in a world of glory for the sons of God. The metaphor in verse 22 applied to the creation is a woman suffering uh, the pains of childbirth. 
I remember those days in my own life. Two times I watched a measure of that suffering. When my sons were born, every thought of suffering was gone. There was the joy of childbirth. That's what will happen to us in uh, the resurrected new world order. All sufferings will be forgotten forever. Sorrow and sighing will flee away from us. And eternal unremitting joy uh, will be every aspect of our life by the power of God. The weight of the curse is the source of intense and surging pain for the woman. But she knows that that is not the end. And so she endures. The curse is not final. Our restoration is. Essentially the theology of the Apostle Paul. We live in a universe under a curse. In many respects, we suffer the effects of it, even as the sons of God. We don't escape anything, but our outcome is totally different because as the sons of God, glory will follow our suffering. It's very interesting in the secular universe, uh, the world is a closed system. Essentially, the world has no hope whatsoever. We're born, we suffer, Sure, there are times of joy, happiness, but eventually even that too is eroded. The curse takes over in sickness and uh, the erosion of health. Men die, thrown into a hole in the ground. That's the end of us all in a totally secular system. No hope whatsoever, no purpose, no real answers. Very interesting, the great struggle of the existential philosophers finally come to the conclusion there is no really answer. It is what it is. We're born, we suffer, we die. No answer whatsoever. In our own country, uh, think about it. Uh, reading a statistic in the newspaper that um, suicides are just cascading to an incredible high in the United States of America. Incredible. How can it be? Substance abuse. Why is that? People searching for answers. Something to lessen the pain. I mean, I don't know or fully understand it, but I know that it's real. In many respects, every hope is dashed. For the secularist, not for the sons of God. We can wait patiently, full of hope, because we know that our end is different. And waiting for us is glory, the time of the coming of our great Redeemer. So that we are different, we have a sure and certain hope. And for us, everything is purposeful. There is no chance for us, because we are the sons of God. I can't imagine, personally as an individual, living in a world where words like luck and chance were the words of the day. 
They don't apply to the Christian. There is no luck and there is no chance. We are the sons of God. And there awaits for us eternal glory. Because that's what God has for all of his sons. It should stir us to be children of hope. Children who persevere. And by the way, it also frames a measure of the answer that we can give to an utterly secular world that has no hope. Because we have it. And the fullness of the reality, the hope of the sons of God, will not be disappointed. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. The apostle says, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are the sons of God. And in this present life, Peter goes on to say, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The theology of the Apostle Paul in our text this morning. What awaits us is imperishable, undefiled. It will not fade. I don't know about you, but everything in my life uh, seemingly fades. I buy a car, it breaks. Mow my yard, it grows back. My wife plants gardens and flowers, and sure enough, there's weeds. Thorns and thistles. It is almost impossible for us to imagine an eternity in which the curse is totally vacated, in what breaks upon us imperishable and unfading is eternal glory. Incredible. It's a reason we wait, we hope. We persevere. It's also a beautiful message we can take to a secular world that essentially has no hope. In verses 23 to 25, we too, like the creation, await the redemption of the body and the eternal weight of glory that for us as the sons of God is certain. Certain. Because of the promises of God. The cause of our waiting is that we have the first fruits of the Spirit. We ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. It's an Old Testament harvest metaphor. As you know from your study of the Old Testament, uh, the first of the harvest was given to God. He owned it all because he gave it all, but he gets the first. It means that there's more to come. That's my concept of the first fruits. If we give the first to God, then there's more of the harvest to come. In our case, the Spirit has saved us. He has made us alive spiritually. The Spirit is the source of this blessing. And what he has begun will continue eventuating in the restoration of our body from cursed to the blessings of glory. 
that are imperishable and will not fade away. And that's what sons get. Glory. We'll follow their sufferings. And so we should be indeed a children of incredible hope. Yeah, Paul writes in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, uh, verse 13 and 14. In the Spirit you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who has given us a pledge of our inheritance with a review to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. So as the sons of God, we have the Spirit. All of the sons of God have the Spirit. It's a pledge, first fruits, that more is to come. But it's not just more is to come. It's the best is yet to come in eternal glory that will not fade. And two, the bodily resurrection of our Savior is a guarantee that our bodies will be resurrected too. As the earth will be fully restored, we will as well. And every aspect of the curse will vacate and the restoration will become permanent. In the new heavens and new earth, there is no longer any possibility whatsoever of a fall. Because God's cure is forever in glory. And the body will be raised imperishable and incorruptible. It's those incredible words that resound to me all of the time, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. And we shall be changed forever. The spiritual renewal begun in the new creation, our coming to faith in Christ, will eventuate into the final, immutable, and irreversible restoration of our bodies in glory, just like our Savior. As He was glorified, we will be too. It's a reminder that our salvation, of course, comes in two phases. Phase one is spiritual. God gives us new hearts and new minds. We come to Christ. If you will, John 3, we are born again. And that sets in motion the eventual outcome of phase two. Resurrection into total, complete, glorified bodies on a glorified new heavens and new earth. It's an illustration, a language that theologians oftentimes use of the already and not yet. The already is that because we are born again, it's begun, it's started. It's a process that will run its course. It has to run its course because of the work of the Spirit, because He's the first fruits, meaning that more will follow, and it will run its course, and then the not yet. We wait eagerly for the coming of our Savior and the restoration of it all. And the former is the guarantee of the latter. If you will, we have a down payment in the earnest in the Spirit securing our final liberation and deliverance. And the hope that comes from this will not be disappointed. Think about it. We will never again be disappointed. Disappointment breaks all of our lives. Different strengths and uh, intensities. But in the new, never again. We shall be changed 
The passive voice from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52, means that the Spirit will act upon us. And therefore, the change will be certain, irrevocable in eternal glory. The future tense with God as the subject speaks to absolute certainty. I can make a promise. More likely than not, it will not happen. But if it does, it will certainly fade. God's promise will happen and will not fade. And so we continue to wait in faith and hope and trust, knowing that change is coming. And what is that change? Our sufferings will be turned to glory. God will answer our sufferings and our tribulations with glory. And it will never leave us. Never leave us. And never again to return. A great reminder of this in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Every time a Christian dies, the Spirit immediately translated to heaven. The process again intensified. The great promise of Enoch, he was not, for God took him. That our answer to the grave, for the Christian, God took our loved one. They're not left, not forgotten, taken. Death is not the end of us. Because we go to be with the Lord. Second Kings uh, chapter two verse eleven, the great translation of Elijah, came about as they were going along and talking that behold there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. A prophet, a Christian, God leaves no one behind. When I was in the Army, there was a specialized unit uh, stationed in Hawaii that every time, wherever in the world, someone came across something that could have been a place where an American soldier was left, that unit would be activated. They would go to that site and begin to recover it and do all of the tests and recover what was left. And the implicit to promise of every soldier is that we don't leave anybody behind. Even though you and I know, certainly in the present world order, that we do leave people behind. But God leaves no one of his sons behind. None are forgotten. The first fruits of the Spirit is our present reminder that more is to come. Not just more. The greatest and the best is yet to come, as God will change our suffering to glory. So why we uh, persevere, verse 25. If we hope for what is we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. The creation is waiting. The sons of God is waiting. God will come in his own sovereign time, and we will get glory forever. 
I don't fully understand it. But what little I glean for this, from this text is simply this. The wait is worth it. Go the distance. It will come for you. Glory will come for you. So suffering, regardless of the venue in this present life, is for us as the sons of God, not the end. It's a confirmation that we are sons and identified with the eternal son. If he suffered, we will suffer. As he was glorified, we will be too. And sons are heirs of God. And he will reward all of his sons with eternal glory. May we have thankful hearts, even as we shed tears, even as we worry and get in distress. God will come for us in his own time. And we will know at that time that it was all worth it to be faithful to the end and to persevere to the end, full of hope, because of our great God, the only God who gathers all of his sons in the great harvest to which we wait eagerly for, namely the coming of glory that will catch all sons into everlasting life.